You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. And welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. With me today is my co-host, Aliza. Hello. And our special guest, Ruman. Hi. It's been so long. I'm so glad we have you back on the show. I am so thrilled to be here. Uh, would you like to, uh, for people who may not know you, introduce yourself to our listeners, tell us a bit about you and your relationship with Star Trek? Sure. Um, so a bit about myself. My name is Dr. Ramon Chowdhury. I'm currently the director of Machine Learning Ethics, Transparency, and Accountability at Twitter. So our team's name is Meta. What is my relationship to Star Trek? Wow. Um, deep. And it goes back really, really far. I... First started watching Trek at probably the age of six or seven, TNG first run. But I will say it's DS9 that made me who I am today and is, you know, will always have my heart. And, you know, I've watched, you know, every Trek movie, I will probably say. Um, and I am completely thrilled lately at the, you know, basically like embarrassment of riches we have of Trek with all the amazing new series coming out and you know, whether you like them or don't like them, I, I think a lot of us can remember a time where you had to wait every week for one hour of Star Trek. And now you can just binge watch Trek literally whenever you want. It was, you know, actually in prep for this episode, I just kind of binge watched all of the episodes that we were talking about, the outline document. And I'm like, this is so much fun. <laughs> I will say before I get started, I do want to give a shout out to my team at Twitter. <laughs> I mentioned in Team Slack that I would be on this podcast and everyone was super excited and it led to quite a bit of internal team discussion um, and a lot of people exposing themselves for the massive Star Trek fans that they are. Uh, there are quite a few people who work in machine learning ethics, especially who are big Trek fans. And I think it was the, the first show that really you know, exposed the idea of robots or artificial intelligence in a way that was philosophical. Um, we had never really talked about AI and robots in a philosophical way in that manner before, at least for some of us, it was the first time we thought about it. And the thoughtfulness that was put even into the earliest episodes of Trek, um, I think, shaped a lot of us. And I'm unsurprised to see so many people on my team and in this field in general who are big, big fans. That is fantastic. And so quite clearly, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning today. Uh, <laughs> so we have the perfect guest with us. Before we get there, we do have some housekeeping to do, as usual. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. Find out more on patreon.com slash womenatwarp and join us for some watch-alongs, some non-Trek podcasts, and some other fun rewards. This episode is brought to you by Text Expander. More from them a little later. And are you heading back to in-person conventions this fall? You'll be able to find members of the crew at DragonCon, Rose City Comic Con, the Sci-Fi Summit in Edison, New Jersey, and New York Comic Con, among potential others. And that is all for today. So let's get into it. This topic came to us from one of our patrons. This was a patron-suggested episode from Inigo, who said, I would really like an in-depth discussion of AI and machine learning in Trek. What does Trek really think about artificial intelligence? 
That is quite the topic. Yeah, huge question. (laughs) I don't know if an hour is enough to even scratch the surface, but we will do our best. We will do our best. Yeah, so we say this a lot, but this episode will not be a comprehensive list of every time Star Trek deals with artificial intelligence or machine learning. That would not be possible. We're going to try to touch on every series if we can, and hopefully pick out some of the episodes that are really exemplary of what the series and the show itself has to say about these topics. But very first, right off the bat, I wanted to do some definitions. And Ruman, please tell me if this is accurate, because you are clearly the expert. Artificial intelligence is a technology which enables a machine to simulate human behavior. Machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence, which allows a machine to automatically learn from past data without programming it explicitly. So yes, and I do want to get hung up a bit on the word simulate human behavior. I think if we were to talk about artificial intelligence, especially as it relates to track and also in sort of the futuristic way in which it is sold versus the reality of the world we live today, the word simulate would be something that I think would be hotly discussed and debated, right? So we had the founder of DeepMind um, talking about this really fascinating protein folding uh, technology that they've come up with that can help cure diseases, saying things like, oh, well, it's easy. We're just going to map the human brain and the human brain's basically like a computer, but it's not. It's not that easy. So, you know, Some people do think that we will actually achieve artificial general intelligence, um, which is not a simulation of human behavior, but essentially a replica of the human mind and human consciousness. The world we live in today is narrow AI, which is more of a simulation, a pretty terrible simulation of that. Um, So I, I think it's interesting you put that word in there. I think that word alone in the AI community would lead to a lot of discussion and debate. Well, I I found that word on the internet more so than than put it in there myself. (laughs) Which we know is 100% (laughs) true. Uh, The internet's just only full of truth. No, but I I, I, I do think these are are great uh, definitions and a good starting point for our conversation. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to organize this episode because there are so many ways to do it. There's sort of the creation story of the AI. There is the the type, if you can call it that, of AI. There's chronologically, in terms of like release date, there's chronologically in-universe. But I finally sort of settled on humanoid versus non-humanoid. And I want to start with our non-humanoid AI. And I think one of the best examples we have of that is the ultimate computer from the original series. I love that episode because it brings up a lot of the concerns we have today and is closer to this notion of narrow AI, as as I was talking about earlier, than this concept of artificial general intelligence and like throw in a dash of, you know, Asimov's rules of robotics into it. And then poof, you get this really great episode. Um, But I'm curious to actually hear what stood out to you and what are the concerns that, you know, both of you thought about when when thinking through this episode? Well, for me, um, the main takeaway in rewatching this episode recently is this fear that humans have of robots or AI replacing us and taking our jobs and things like that. And this is a very, very current modern day fear that is still here. Um, If you look at like Amazon and these other 
huge corporations that have warehouses that are run by robots, or at least all the manual labor is by robots, and there are just like maybe several humans instead of hundreds of humans that used to work there. There are a lot of also, I think, car companies that have replaced some human labor on the floor, which is actually maybe not a bad thing because those were dangerous jobs that humans were doing at great risk to themselves. But the problem is that there's less human labor that's being employed there. So I think that's one big takeaway that I have from from this episode. Yeah. And so it's really interesting because we're talking about non-humanoid and I, I'd even add to non-humanoid like non-physical, like it does not have a physical tangible format. So you are talking about Amazon having warehouse robots, which is, you know, very valid and, and definitely a fear. But then there's also the intangible. At Amazon, there are algorithms that determine productivity and decide if people should get fired. Um, right. So it's, you know, it's it's tailorism at its worst. It's pushing into people to work at the rate a machine works and machines don't need to sleep. Machines don't need to eat or go to the bathroom. I mean, you may have heard like uh, analogies and, and it's very real. It's not even analogies like these stories of Amazon workers and drivers, especially literally peeing into bottles mm-hmm. in order to make their delivery schedules. And all of this is because everything they're doing, their data is being collected. It's being tracked and it's put into an algorithm. So it's interesting that you bring up Amazon because yes, there is absolutely a fear of a physical robot replacing human behavior, there is also this fear of this abstract conceptual algorithm judging you and determining if you deserve to have your job. And I find I found that really fascinating. And and it kind of it kind of relates to the nature of this of this episode. You know, we haven't we have a, a an AI essentially making decisions to kill people. I mean, obviously, you know, more extreme than laying somebody off a job, but you see where the parallels are. Yeah, as a quick reminder, uh, this is the episode where Dr. Daystrom uh, shows up on the Enterprise and installs M5, his program that is supposed to essentially replace Kirk and make command decisions and run algorithms and defend the ship. And really, it's it, there's a lot about Kirk wondering if he becomes obsolete, but then M5 sort of runs amok and decides that everything is a threat the Enterprise is about to destroy other Federation ships because M5 can't discern the the good guys or friends from enemies, rather. Yeah, and in, in our field, that's actually a, a paradox we call the paperclip maximizer, which may have been it may be an analogy that you're familiar with, but essentially the thought experiment is very similar to this. You create an AI that maximizes the number of paperclips that can be Produced and the ultimate conclusion it arrives at is you need to kill everybody because every human being is getting in the way of maximizing the number of paper clips that are being produced. So it's actually it's actually you know analogous to something to a thought experiment that that exists in the more philosophical world of AI. Um, the other parallel that exists here is specifically about automated killing machines, um, and I do want to bring this up because lethal autonomous weapon systems is something that's discussed quite a bit in the AI world and often especially in the world of ethics and AI, there are actually organizations called, uh, you know, about stopping lethal lethal robots. It's actually called Stop Killer Robots. Um, but I do want to point out that this year, the first autonomous weaponized drone was used this year. It's something called the Cargo 2, and it was created by a Turkish company. Um, and the difference between that drone um, and the traditional drones with guns that are, have already existed in warfare is that this one makes the decision to shoot, to kill. 
versus the other ones, which are basically a camera with a human on the other end and then the human sort of pushing the button. So here's where we start to actually move into lethal autonomous weapon systems, which is something that, you know, really does raise a lot of scary ethical questions. Yeah, <laughs> it's terrifying. I, I'm just finding out about this. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise not to be, I promise not to be all doom and gloom. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't know about that, uh, the Cargo 2. That's really, yeah, that is pretty terrifying. Yeah, it was a little over a month ago, uh, at least, you know, the UN came out and was talking about it a little over a month ago. I don't know how widespread it, uh, weapons like this are, are being used or, or thought about being used, but essentially it, the company claims that they use machine learning and real-time image processing to identify its targets. And there's a lot of things we could talk about there about the shortcomings of these algorithms. But, you know, it's, it's certainly worth noting that, you know, unfortunately, defense and warfare is, you know, always very close and, and mm-hmm. spending a lot of money on this kind of thing. Yeah. There's actually a question from the person who, the, our patron who suggested this topic, Inigo. They asked, why do you, M5 and Landrew and so many others fall for a logical paradox in this episode. Again, I think here's where we start to think about artificial general intelligence and the complexity of the way human beings think and, you know, why we can be in a world of narrow AI, which is I take some data for a specific thing, I train a model and I get some sort of out probabilistic output to this dream we have of AI as something more like maybe data. Right. And we can, of course, I know we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about data. How do we not? And the complexity of the human condition, to be honest, like for us, it seems like a pretty rational and easy to follow pathway. Like what, you know, stumps a computer in creating a logical paradox. But these are actually quite complex and contextual situations. I think, you know, pretty simply put, and if I were to give like a today example, language detection models can't pick up things like sarcasm. What's, and I find that really fascinating because even if you don't speak a language in a country, you can fly to that country and see two natives speaking and you would be able to tell what their mood is and how they are communicating. And you pick up these signals like body language, tone, et cetera. Twitter is a great example. You can go on Twitter and you can tell if someone's being sarcastic or if someone's being malicious. We cannot train an AI system to be able to do that if they're really incapable of it. So if something as, quote, easy as identifying if someone's being mean or angry or sarcastic versus someone just joking with their friend is impossible for an AI system, you know, some of the most sophisticated models built today, I'm kind of unsurprised that, that you know, even in this magical future world where we have all of these amazing and complicated technologies that an AI, an artificially built system is unable to do a very basic, you know, human action. Yeah, I don't think we realize how difficult that is, like picking up those clues um, just from from humans. Mm-hmm. Would you say it, it feels like to me that a lot of the fears about AI are not the things that we actually should be afraid of about AI? <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, uh, that is actually a great way to put it. Um, and so much of the fears of AI, and, and I, I know we're going to talk about Picard later too. I, I feel like Picard's one of the great depictions of it because so much of it boils down to this, you know, person or a humanoid or, you know, some living creature creating a cult of personality around them. Uh, and that is sometimes a lot of what Silicon Valley feels like. It feels like cults of personality built around mainly men, mainly white men, 
um, who push their own personal agendas by hiding it behind this veneer of sort of technological acumen or like technological greatness when really what's behind it is is often a lot of ego mm, well said <laughs> <laughs> i will either get snaps or hate mail from that i'm not sure which <laughs> right probably a lot of snaps from our audience at least <laughs> um, uh, maybe we should move on to the next um the next example in trek the next example that, that I wrote down is really two examples because they are very similar, if not almost the exact same story. And that is uh, V'ger in the motion picture and Nomad in the Changeling, uh, both of which, you know, were probes sent out by NASA that collided with another entity and became something greater, right? So these accidental AIs that then come back searching for their creator. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Vijer because it's it's a fascinating interpretation of what an artificial general intelligence and AGI could be like, but it actually exists in you know a non-purely robotic form. And, and I do find a lot of really interesting parallels and in, you know, obviously recognizing that this was not made in the modern day, but there is some really interesting parallels with the way Vijer does data discovery, like by scanning people, gathering information, uh, and ultimately using it kind of maliciously, but unintentionally maliciously, and parallels to actually how all of our data is often sold on markets. Um, You know, I feel like I keep promising not to do doom and gloom, but I'm like, oh, but here's this really scary story you should be absolutely aware of. Uh, So there's a lot of articles lately about something called Pegasus. Uh, And Pegasus has been used to actually track um, and and actually uh, find a lot of personal information about journalists in particular, including folks like Jamal Khashoggi. Um, so it is an, an, an AI system that was built um, in, you know, with, you know, essentially publicly available data and data you can buy in a marketplace, essentially, well, mainly on the dark web. But also some of it is not on the dark web. Uh, there are there are companies that are data brokers and they sell your information. So, you know, I, I the thing that really stuck out to me was this idea of, data collection, it's seeming kind of innocuous. If you remember, you know, when V'ger sort of does this scan and it's gathering information, like the individuals aren't specifically harmed. They're just like, oh, it's a tingly, buzzy feeling. And then it's kind of moved on. And, you know, again, parallels to today, and we think about artificial intelligence and, and you know, all these, you know, complex and literally invasive systems that are being built on the data that we very innocuously share on social media, on whatever, every time you click on an image, every time you watch a video, there was analysis done of the TikTok algorithm. And it showed that the, the biggest predictor that influenced your timeline was literally how long you spent on a video. So, you know, everything that you're doing is being tracked, however innocent that behavior. Uh, and it's going to feed the sort of bigger model that's making all these imputations and studies about you. Mm. So question about V'ger, is it, okay, how, on a scale of one to 10, how possible or realistic is it for an unmanned, un, well, uncrewed, I should say, space probe to gain sentience? I mean, it seems like a silly question, but I think they're, I'm asking a real question here. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I will say, like, obviously, one cannot speak for all of humanity in the future, but I will make a safe assumption that we are not seeing anything like this anytime soon. But what if? But what if? No. What if you programmed the space probe to gather data? 
how much data like is there a threshold of how much data like uh, a machine would have to acquire and you know what I mean like I guess what I'm asking is about the singularity <laughs> yeah, if, if I can maybe piggyback I guess there is there a, a tipping point if you will between machine learning and, and artificial intelligence into sentience yes is that is that a actual feasible thing so maybe I'll I'll quote one of the people who's called one of the godfathers of AI who's, who's won the the Turing Award um, and say that the current way that we do we build artificial intelligence and machine learning it's actually very mathy there's really a lot of math behind it and while you program the math and programming is basically you know math written out uh, you know we Jeff Hinton has said that we're not going to achieve. Uh, AGI, we're not going to achieve the singularity the way we're doing AI today because it's too computationally intensive. It's too limited and our structures are too limited. So the issue actually really isn't the data. It is how we create our algorithms and the models that exist. So if we think about the word model, it is literally that it is a model of the world, like an economic model or a model car or a model airplane. It is a fair representation of what it is that it's trying to simulate, but it will forever be a simulation or an approximation. So there's a lot I could learn if I'd never seen an airplane before by looking at a model airplane, but I will not know everything about an airplane. And that's quite literally what we build when we build machine learning and AI models. We're building approximations of the world. And sometimes they're fairly good approximations of the world, um, but there, there are definitely limitations. So sure, we can collect more and more data, but what will we do with that data? How do we use it? And are we actually drawing the right conclusions is where the limitation comes in. And in terms of coming to an AGI, or at least some sort of singularity or sentience, I mean, it requires a mind-boggling amount of, I would say, like, non-contextual training. Because really, the, the beauty of humankind is we are able to take learnings we apply in one situation and apply it in any other situation, right? So we learn by imputation, or we learn by experience, or we learn simply because like someone told you to do something or not do something, and we make judgment calls on whether or not we want to do that thing or not, right? Something as simple as like, hey, Elisa, take an umbrella today, it's raining. You're going to look out the window and be like, eh, I don't think it's going to rain, right? That in of itself is actually a pretty complex series of actions that required a lot of background thinking, um, that we definitely take for granted. And I'll, I'll give you a really tangible example. Um, people have been talking about self-driving cars for ages. Um, we are nowhere near achieving self, fully self-driving cars. And we've actually seen the narrative, you know, basically dwindle down to be, to kind of, you'll have really good parking. And sometimes if there's nothing on the road, your car can go really, really fast. <laughs> and and the, the funniest thing to me, I thought it was hilarious. They call it the Zoolander effect is that, at a four-way intersection, self-driving cars have a really hard time making a left turn. And they do so because if you think when you sit at a four-way intersection, there's a car at each, there is a lot of body language and looks and sort of implicit communication. And it's, you think about it's actually fascinating because these are four complete strangers. These people do not know each other. They do not know how the other person communicates. But there is this universal driving language where somebody goes and someone waves someone through and someone nods. or But you know what you're all saying. We're not getting into accidents every single time we have four cars in an intersection. But that is too much for a self-driving car to be able to handle. So I find I find little anecdotes like that super fascinating. Um, 
So your question's a really great one. And what I love, though, is that questions like that really capture the imagination. And I can't emphasize enough the value of Trek and talking about AI and showing us the possibilities of AI that shapes how we imagine the future. So in the world I live in, you know, these people are making the technology and it, the idea has to come from somewhere. So there's this really great work by folks at the Leverhulme Center for Future Intelligence, uh, Dr. Kanta Dehal and Stephen Cave, and it's called AI Narratives. And they actually went through and to different people in different cultures and talked to them about what are their folk tales and fairy tales and stories about things like AI and how does it influence the kind of AI that gets built and our perceptions of AI. So like one of the stories that, that they have that really stood out to me is, you know, in Japan, there's less of a fear of robots. And it's frankly because a lot of people grew up watching anime that was sort of the mecha human hybrid. You think Voltron, you think whatever, like Robotech, right? So it's always been seen as a human robot symbiosis, whereas in the U.S., other than Trek, most of our narratives are very dystopian. You get Terminator, you get Hal, you get an AI that's a robot that's going to go crazy and going to try to kill you. So we have more of a fear of us versus them, and it's less of a narrative in other countries. So I find that really fascinating. So stories that are spun and the stories we are told spark our imagination. I mean, we, we know that the iPhone was originally kind of modeled, right, after transceivers and, you know, and, and you know, recording devices from Trek. Um, so it's, it's fascinating because the, the things we watch as children and things we watch in movies shape what is built in reality. You know, it's very art influencing life and life influencing art. Well, exactly what you said would not happen a few minutes ago is the storyline of the next episode on our list. <laughs> Perfect segue. I that one out <laughs> but that, that is a TNG is the quality of life. This is the episode with the exocomps, one we simply could not ignore for this list. And the, the programmer says they can learn, they says they can make decisions, says they can analyze, and they get so good at it that they become sentient, right? That's the plot of the episode. What stands out to me about this episode is that it's one of the few times I can recall the other really also being in Next Gen, the episode Evolution with the Nanites, that they start debating the rights of a non-humanoid AI. This is the stuff I love talking about. I mean, I think all of us can say Measure of a Man is one of the most poignant episodes, one of the most philosophical episodes, one of the most thoughtful episodes uh, in all of science fiction, let alone in all of Star Trek, right? So, uh, and, you know, I, I'm excited to talk a bit about the Doctor and Voyager later, too. Um, so it's, it is such a fascinating conversation, not because it's a, it's a debate we're going to have to have in our lives about humans, but I do think there's a lot of parallels to, you know, how we treat animals, Right. How we think about beings that we don't think of as equal to ourselves. Um, and for some people, unfortunately, that extends to other human beings. Right. Uh, we can think about we can think about this parallel when we think about nature and the climate uh, and what's and, you know, what's happening uh, all over the world. So I, I, what I love about these narratives is not so much that it teaches us how we should think about artificial intelligence systems, but it teaches us how to be better people um, and how to be more thoughtful and how we interact with other creatures, essentially, that we don't be, view as being us. Um, but, you know, I, I actually really love the idea of exocomps. I think they're really cool. So They were pretty adorable, too. Like, they're kind of cute. 
And we know they come back in lower decks, or at least one does. I want us to move on to our humanoid AI, but I do just want to throw out a couple of the the other episodes we had on this list. There is uh, TNG's Emergence, which is when the ship creates intelligence because it can. There doesn't seem to be a catalyst for it. And the crew seems totally unbothered by that. And that intelligence goes off to explore the universe. Sure. Uh, there's Voyager's Dreadnought. That is the episode where uh, they find a Cardassian uh, probe, I believe, probe or, or weapon that Bellana had altered when she was with the Maquis, and it has the, the two operating systems have sort of combined into it, an AI that doesn't want to trust her. There's Enterprise's Dead Stop, where they've got an AI running an automated repair station that is kidnapping living beings to gain processing power. And there's essentially pretty much all of Discovery Season 2. We've got our our intelligent sphere full of hundreds of thousands of years of data. That's probably the incorrect number. There's control that's created by Section 31. And there's Zora in, in the short trek Calypso. So there's there's quite a lot going on. Anything anybody want to shout out about any of those before we move on? I worry about going down too much rabbit hole if we start talking about especially control, but just the whole season two arc of discovery. Um, but I, I agree that we should probably move on and talk about humanoids. I feel like most people listening, you know, came in thinking, oh, we're going to talk about data. We're going to talk about the doctors. That's what we're going to do. You need to give your fans what they want. <laughs> so when we're talking about humanoid AI, we've basically got two categories. We've got androids and holograms. So let's let's start with the androids. Before we get right into data, though, we do have androids in the TOS era. In a couple of episodes, What Little Girls Are Made Of, iMud, Return to Tomorrow, Requiem for Methuselah, they almost always are of unknown origin or come from another galaxy and don't work like the Soon-type androids and fall for the same logical traps as uh, like Landru and M5 do. Any thoughts about these? About the 60s idea of, of androids on TV? As long as we didn't get fembots, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're all scantily clad. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> I mean, that's apparently how everyone just rolled in the 60s. I mean, I didn't have the chance to rewatch all of these, but when, when you do go back and watch it, they are very much written like the non-humanoid, non-humanoid AIs in TOS as well. So there's not a ton of difference and they're they're seen to be sort of threatening in the same way that like M5 was. Not exactly the same way, not in a replace Kirk kind of way, but in the we're stronger than you, we're better than you, we don't need to eat, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I wonder how much of that was sort of brought about because of the Cold War and, you know, following up in World War Two and all of these advances in technology. I mean, we weren't quite at, you know, computers being mainstream, but we were definitely in a post-nuclear era. We are in an era of, you know, expansion of science and technology. You know, we are in an era where we're going to the moon. Um, so I do think that it's a it's a logical leap to think about, well, what if we just created robot people? Yeah. For the time, it also makes sense that the main concern is that threat that they pose to us. It's like, it's not about their humanity. It's about them replacing us or them harming us or wanting to kill all of us. Which changes entirely in the next generation. We're there. It's data. Data. Um, and, and lore and 
Soong and Joanna and Before and <laughs> the the Soong type androids. And Lal, let's not forget Lal. Lal. Oh, yeah. and Lal, yes. But um, Data, created in the image of his creator, right? Nuni and Soong, quite literally, because Brent Spiner played all of them. And seeking to be human. So the thing that was a big knock against the AI in TOS, you're, you're cold, you're unfeeling, you're, you're unempathetic, becomes Data's pursuit in the next generation. Yeah, I mean, I will say the one thing I do want to point out is the idea of an emotion chip cracks me up. So it's just like you can just like take this thing out of your head and that makes Data Data and Lore Lore or, you know whatever, swap, swap them out. That That's what makes data uniquely data. I, I mean, I think as a thought experiment, it's also actually kind of fascinating. What if you could generate an emotion chip and, you know, you can download your personality. I think that's, you know, some of the hype around things like Neuralink, um, you know, the, the ability to, to stick things in your brain and either augment you as a human being or change you as a human being. So independent of, you know, an Android having a chip that theor- theoretically makes him more human, there is actually this, the opposite where, you know, there are a lot of people who do body augmentation with different, you know, fairly low tech things. But, you know, a lot of the conversation around things like Neuralink would be, is it possible to have a perfect memory, for example, or, you know, remember all your dreams very clearly or, you know, know every language uh, by augmenting our brains with different microchips about things. So oversimplification of what these technologies could have, how they could theoretically look. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a, a couple of interesting things about data. So first is, you know, I would wonder why, I mean, and I suppose this is the answer is, you know, human hubris. Why would you gender AI and also like heteronormative AI? Like data really wanted a white picket fence in a house outside Cleveland and the 2.5 children and the minivan. And I'm like, dang, data of all of the things you could be in all of the world, you, you want to be like a soccer mom? Data wants to be a soccer mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it it is reflecting back what, especially in the 80s, mm-hmm. we were told we were supposed to want, right? Mm-hmm. That That is the epitome of humanity and successful living, right? Is the, the relationship and the children and the home and the successful career. And the cat. Let's not let's not forget Spot because Spot is a good cat. Uh, no, I, I agree. I think it's really interesting, and you're right. There's this interesting '80s reflection of what it means to have a fulfilled life, and to have a fulfilled life, it means you're married and you're gainfully employed, and you have children, and you have the pet, and you know you have your sort of lovely nuclear, uh, you know, family, and 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 all of the trappings that come along with that. It is it is very is very fascinating, especially if you think of you know TNG as the I always saw it, thought, thought of it as a very sanitized version of Trek. It's this very like elite, quite literally, right? Their, their chairs are these like beautiful leather chairs that basically all space themes chairs, as opposed to like, you know, in DS9, where essentially they're just like sitting on bar stools all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, I, and again, like for me, as I mentioned in the beginning, this transition from TNG to DS9 which for me happened in like this very pivotal, like I was a kid when I watched TNG. So like having the safe, comfortable, happy world where like, frankly, everything was very normative in every single way, like heteronormative, gender normative. Uh, and even think of like data as a reflection of, as you mentioned, like 
the, 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 the normativity and the boringness of the eighties. And then you jump into the nineties and you're getting, you know, DS nine and all of a sudden you're thrown into all of these complex conversations, you know? Yeah. And, and while we don't really have a ton of AI in this sense and sort of the humanoid sense in DS nine, I think it does spark a lot of the most interesting conversations. And frankly, I, I would have loved to see data try to navigate the world of DS9 <laughs> rather than the sort of very fixed and, you know, very calm and complacent world of, of TNG. Yeah, I mean, and not to skip ahead, but we can when we get to Picard, we can talk about like data in Picard as well and how his role, his relationship to Picard is really important in that story. And then his role in that story is also, I think, very different from his role in TNG. But uh, I wanted to say, Real quick, that another thing about Data in TNG, his, you know, his aspirations of being more human and that, you know, picket fence dream he has. I think now looking back, it's easy to say this, uh, but it feels it just shows like how navel gazy sci-fi writing can be <laughs> like, especially, you know, in this t day and age right now, 2021, I think. From now on, we will have stories that are more open and they break open the human experience and what it can be more. And we'll have better representation in those as well. But back then, as progressive and forward-facing Star Trek was, it still was written mostly by white, cisgendered, straight men. So that navel-gazing of their experience, like they're writing their desires into that character as well. But it's just so explicit when you when you look at it through the 2021 lens yeah absolutely i i totally agree and maybe we can talk a little bit about lol and you know the literal invention of a child right which again going back to this idea of hubris if there's anything that comes out of lol it's not so much that data learned to love a child it's just that it's that hum human hubris of wanting to make a thing and own it essentially yeah, and make it perfect and because it wasn't perfect it had to it had to go away. It was just like, oh, God. Yeah. I mean, her her matrix was fragmenting. It's not that she wasn't perfect. She was dying. Yeah. But what I'm saying is like that that is like a parenthood thing where, you know, you look at your children and you feel broken if they're ill or if there's something like that. Data went through that with Lal in a very visceral way, for sure. Absolutely. And, and there is a lot to data that is so fascinating, right? I mean, there is so much more than an emotion chip. And I think, you know, to your point, Elise, you're talking about that in Picard. There is so much more to data than just sort of the neurons that sort of created him and the ability to stick this chip into an android's head that's transferable. Like I was joking about it earlier, but ultimately, you know, there are certainly instances in which data is acting more human in the philosophical sense. You know, and sometimes what I loved about data is he sort of served as the team Socrates. Like he would ask seemingly childish questions that are actually quite complex. And that is quite literally the Socratic method, right? You, you prove or disprove an idea by starting from basic principles and asking why, 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 and asking everyone to explain themselves and asking the definition of something. And, and I think, you know, data served as their conscience to an extent, because sometimes as humans, we sort of rush past decision making and we assume everyone's on the same page as us. Uh, but there's something very methodical to Data's approach to humanity. He tried to solve it like a puzzle or a problem. And in doing so, like he actually started to tear apart what it meant to be human. And, you know, I think that a parallel that, that I think is really fascinating is, you know, thinking about gender fluidity. And we think about today, we start to dissect what it means to all the assumptions 
that we all have been raised with and lots of people hold about what it means to be a particular gender and what it means. So today I was having a conversation about nail polish with somebody on my team who is male. And, you know, we were talking about how companies are now selling gender neutral nail polish, but actually there is no difference with other nail polish. It's just we just decided that one of it got gendered and the other one isn't. And it's, it's interesting that the things we assume uh, and then when you start from a fresh perspective or sometimes an outsider's perspective, you re-ask a lot of the basic questions that makes all of it crumble and fall apart. And that's exactly what he does in, in that Exocom episode in the quality of life. He, he goes in and his first question when he suspects something is going on is, what is life? Mm-hmm. And then as, as he learns more and as he's working on this problem, it becomes, well, how are they different from me? Mm. Oh, data, love. But one, one of the things Star Trek does is very early on, season two, next gen, they have him fighting for his rights, for his personhood, for, yeah, honestly, ownership of himself, right? Because the, the trial is, is Data the property of Starfleet? Can he even resign, right? Is he allowed to resign? But what's interesting to me is that once they win that case, it never really comes up again. Mm-hmm. Right. So if this is an allegory for marginalized people who have had to fight for different rights over the years, you never win all at once. It's much more, and we'll get there, it's much more like author author, right? Where you kind of win, but mostly lose. And it's, you know, two steps forward, one step back the whole way. But data wins once, and that's it. Hmm. Which kind of takes us into Star Trek Picard, because that decision almost sort of gets reversed with the synths, because something goes wrong. Spoilers, by the way. Star Trek Picard. <laughs> Major Picard spoilers. So yeah, let's let's get into it. There's a lot to unpack in Picard. I mean, I, I, I know some of the reviews of it were not always really positive, but I loved it as somebody who loved TNG, and you got to do a bit of a walk down memory lane in it. And especially, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the relationship between Data and Picard, uh, you know, and, and actually, as you were talking about Measure of Man, as I was thinking, reflecting on Picard, and I was thinking about how I actually cried in some of the scenes. <laughs> the relationship between the two of them was something so beautiful and transcendent, and, you know, the most beautiful kind of friendship that, you know, how could you not see data as human, essentially, because your ability to have this very, very deep and long lasting friendship that, you know, that you literally sacrifice everything for. Quick overview for the the setup for Picard. It's not even really the story yet. It's just (laughs) the setup of the world we're in is, you know, Bruce Maddox has continued to work on synthetic life and has sort of used data as a template to create synths, not and they don't call them androids. They specifically call them synths. And they are intended, if I understand it correctly, intended to not be sentient, but be androids in the sense that like we today think of androids, like workers, or doing difficult tasks and lifting things that are heavier than humans can lift. And they're employed on uh, Utopia Planitia building ships, and one of them blows it up. We still don't really know why. And there's this disaster on Mars. We can assume there was foul play by the Romulans. I think that's hinted at, but not made explicit. But as a result of that, the Federation bans all synthetic life, which is a pretty extreme reaction. And this causes ripple effects throughout the story. 
I think one of the most interesting things to discuss here is the Romulan, quote, religion and this idea that AI is this fundamental threat to all existence. And here's where you know, I talked a little bit earlier about sort of cults of personality, where what I loved about Picard is you start to merge the narrative of evangelical religion to the narrative of technology. And you start to see how sometimes there are a lot of parallels. And especially in, in the worlds we live in today, there's a lot of technological solutionism. I know we haven't gotten to the board yet, but this idea of, you know, technology is fundamentally good. And as long as you are pursuing technology, it is abstract good for everyone. And the, the opposite side of that is sort of this Romulan religious cultural fear of AI that's going to come and kill you. I, I, I think it was it was a pretty brilliant connection to have made. Mm. Wow, I hadn't thought of it that way. For sure. Going back to the Picard and Data connection in in Picard, I think what I saw that was different in their relationship, this added layer, was that Data now serves as an entry point for Picard's next chapter of his physical body, like his existence. I don't think I ever viewed their relationship that way in all of TNG. It was very much like this human captain and this android lieutenant commander are besties and this is what it is. But in Picard, it was this beautiful ushering in for Data to kind of, Data was kind of like instrumental in, in a way for Picard to continue his life by becoming more machine, <laughs> like adding some machine to the human. And I thought that was really poignant. See, and as I was thinking about Picard and the universe, the story, the place that we're in, and then rewatching Measure of a Man this week, I was thinking, you know, what would, if Data had not died at, at the end of the last TNG movie, what would he have been going through during all of this? Mm. If Data's still around when the synths are created, mm -hmm. would he have something to say about it? Oh, I'm sure he would. Would he be fighting for their rights? What if he were around when when there was a ban on synthetic life? Would they shut him down, mm -hmm. even though they had previously ruled that he was his literally his own person? Yeah, I mean, if, if exocomps, you know, his defense of the exocomps is of any example, my my venture would be yes. I, I think it would have been really interesting to see uh, a timeline in which a viable humanoid functioning android that had actually served the Federation, right? It is worth mentioning that the Federation is the military and he served in the military. And it's the equivalent of, you know, thinking through uh, immigrants who come to this country and serve in the military and, you know, their rights to citizenship and their rights to have some sort of say and ownership over, you know, the United States. It's There's a direct, very direct parallel. That's an interesting thought experiment. I would, would love to imagine what that defense literally would look like. We have to keep moving. But first... A word from Text Expander. Get it right every time. Text Expander makes it easy to give your team the right words for every situation. Whether you need to keep your team happy or delight customers with effective answers, you can rest easy knowing that your team has it covered. Now with improved web app security to keep your content protected. With Text Expander, you can keep your team consistent, accurate, and current. Share your text and images with the whole staff to keep them on track. Everyone will share the same message and give the same answers to all customer questions. Use Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything you type. Create powerful snippets to save you time so that all you type is a short abbreviation and Text Expander does the rest of the typing for you. 
Keep your whole team communicating efficiently and with consistent language. Share your snippets of messaging, signatures, and descriptions with everyone who works on projects with you. By these powers combined, you'll work faster and smarter. Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit TextExpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. All right, so from Androids, we move on to Holograms. Of course, our biggest example is going to be the Doctor. But first, I don't think we could do this episode and not talk about Moriarty. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I'm going to admit that this is actually my favorite part of the conversation. uh, Because as I mentioned earlier, this idea of algorithms is really more of the world in which AI looks like. I think it was a antiquated idea that AI would look have physical form and be physical robots. The likelihood of us creating a virtual environment with virtual beings is actually more highly likely within our lifetimes and in the fairly near future. So I am a fan of everything we're about to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing that is most, uh, I don't know, concerning to me about Moriarty is that he's created by the slip of the tongue. Jordy says, create a villain or a, a nemesis that can defeat data rather than that can defeat Sherlock Holmes. And because he said that can defeat data, the ship creates an intelligence. Right. And and apparently only once and never again. Yeah. In in the history of all ships in all of the Federation and also not in the Federation that can create, uh, you know, hollow images and hollow people. Nobody ever does that ever again. Thank goodness. And again, they're not very concerned about it. They're not. They're like, you know, I I guess we're just going to roll with the punches here. (laughs) I mean, I I suppose when you fly around space and literally meet new life forms all the time, you kind of get a little bit numb to to random things happening. But I I do agree. But, you know, I I think the most poignant thing about this episode is, you know, how it, it ends and, you know, sort of putting him in this forever simulation which one can wonder about the ethics of doing something like that. And especially, I know we've had sort of dystopian sci-fi or, you know, even thought experiments about what if we created virtual prisons for people. So if somebody had to to have a, a set, some sort of a sentence, what if you like stuck an individual in a virtual cell in some sort of virtual environment where they couldn't harm people, but they're serving out a sentence. And to me, this kind of felt like the same sort of, thought experiment like isn't it fine then he's exploring some galaxy it's just not real but he was lied to Mm -hmm. because he thinks it's real Mm -hmm. no absolutely and you know and then one might ask does he deserve to not be lied to does this quote-unquote individual virtual or real you know have the same sort of expectations of interaction and conversation and you know as as the rest of us might Mm. but i would like to move to my favorite character of all time. I love Vic Fontaine. Vic Fontaine, yeah. I love Vic Fontaine so much. Also because Vic Fontaine is, you know, associated with mom and now I get all my favorite Ferengi. But what I love about Vic Fontaine is that he is sort of everyone's favorite therapist and everyone's bartender and, you know, always always has a, an ear to lend and, you know, a, a helping hand. Well, unless my memory is really failing me, I don't recall DS9 ever really dealing with, like, 
AI ethics or or Vic's rights or, or anything along those lines, but he certainly becomes a part of that crew. But the closest I ever recall of him, like we, we know he's self-aware. We know he knows when, when the program is off, right? Which is unusual for a hologram. But he only ever really talks about it when Nog is struggling in Paper Moon, right? And he says, this isn't a life for you. You can do so much more. Which for the first time, we get the impression that Vic sees himself as being limited because of his nature. And, and I think you're right, you know, for, for all the talk about social justice issues that DSI exposed us to, they really did treat Vic like an object and a tool. And they sort of pick it up and you use it when it's useful to you and otherwise you discard it. And we do get some inklings that they are aware of how they're being talked about or treated or, you know, uh, interacted with as uh, an object that provides a service rather than a being in its own right. Um, yeah, so th- that's that is a really fascinating take, and maybe a good segue into talking about the doctor. <laughs> yes, the doctor. I love the doctor. I do too. And and again, like I feel like the doctor. I know a lot of when people talk about AI and tech, they think about data, but actually, I think some of the most poignant conversations came up with the doctor more so than data, and in part because the doctor is an, is an incredibly annoying person. <laughs> so, you know, he data is not the type that would raise his hand and be like, hey, so, you know, I'm being marginalized and I'm being hurt. And the doctor was absolutely that person and good for him <laughs> uh, for raising awareness. So we're talking about Vic and, and you know, uh, theoretically how these holograms understand when they're not being utilized and they understand all the shutdown time and the fact that they can't ever leave where they are. And then we get we get author, author. Um you know, where, where the doctor is creating, uh, you know, writing a, a fictionalized uh, narrative. Uh, and the doctor talks about specifically being burdened and oppressed. And the crew is like, I don't understand what the problem here is. What's your problem? Yeah, I think Janeway says directly to him, you're making it seem like, like we don't care about you. Like, I'm, I'm going to have to find the exact line now because it's so oh, kind of clueless, oblivious on her part. Yeah, no, it's it's very patronizing. And I think, you know, sometimes, and especially I think in that episode, it's it's very cringy. A lot of these narratives in Measure of Man too, right, was an analogy for, you know, the treatment of minorities and marginalized groups. And very, very often, you know, and again, today, we, we specifically talk about this, the sort of, oh, I didn't intend to hurt you, or I didn't intend for a bad thing to happen. And the number one thing you learn you know, in any activist community is intent does not equal impact. Sure, they don't think they're treating the doctor poorly and they don't think, you know, that that they're marginalizing him or that they are oppressing him. But that doesn't actually matter. Uh, and the idea that because I didn't mean something, it is somehow OK that I did this thing that somehow absolves you is really a narrative of the privileged more than it ever is a narrative of the oppressed. I did find that that really eye opening and really interesting and rewatching this episode in the context of the time we are in and the conversations we have uh, that are really difficult conversations to have. And a lot of people facing a lot of things about themselves that, that may be kind of ugly, especially, you know, that relationship holds very, very different meaning. So I pulled up the transcript and what Janeway says is if I didn't know better, I'd think this story was written by someone who feels oppressed. Is that how you see yourself doctor? I'm cringing because that's like vibes of HR. Oh, no, wait. A few lines later, like four lines later, 
She says, I understand you have your reasons for writing this, but you should consider how it's going to make your friends feel. <gasps> yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not it. <laughs> wow. And I mean, honestly, the first thing I thought of were actually women of color. I know of, um, Ifeoma Zoma, Timnit Gebru, folks who got fired from tech companies for speaking up and being ethical and doing the right thing and being women of color speaking mm -hmm. up. And quite literally, these are the narratives you hear. I mean, there was just an article about Google and how a common response to, well, and actually not just Google, uh, someone was speaking up on Apple as well, to in particular women when it comes to sexual harassment uh, and people of color when it comes to blatantly racist and oppressive situations is to A, offer them counseling and B, offer them leave. So quite literally, there's a GoFundMe going around right now uh, for this employee at Google who got raped and, you know, her her rapist is at Google. She is on unpaid leave and he is still employed while the investigation goes on. And this is exactly the kind of narrative, right? What, what, like how do you think it'll impact everyone else if you speak up? Uh, Janeway, we didn't know you were such a narc. Don't break my heart. <laughs> Well, and it's it's especially disappointing because the, the whole crew is on Janeway's side of like the, the doctor is being unreasonable. This isn't how he's treated at all until his rights of authorship are being taken away. And then they're all shocked and appalled at how he does not have the same rights that they do. So it is very, very relevant to to people today not quote unquote seeing the oppression until it is something that they can fully understand until it's something they can relate to. Absolutely. And and what I think of is any black woman I know will say, listen to black women, right? And we've had so many instances of malicious things that occur in society. So some of the things that we worry about today on social media, like sock puppet accounts and bot harassment, actually start off by attacking marginalized communities, right? So we did not have a narrative around trolls and doxing, et cetera, until Gamergate, the Black women experience at first. We did not understand what sock puppet accounts were or bot accounts were, but it was actually Black communities uh, that pointed it out first because there were, there were white supremacist groups creating fake accounts, pretending to be people of color within these groups in order to say inflammatory things. So there's definitely this constant repeated narrative of someone who is of an outsider group saying, hey, this really bad thing is happening. Everyone else being very oblivious because it does not impact their lives. And until it impacts them, they're like, oh, wait, what? This is a problem. And the person in the corner is like, I have been yelling this for ages. So the thing about author, author that really spoke to me when I was young and I watched it for the first time is the very end. You know, when we see these Mark ones doing forced labor in a mine, and they're sort of reading the doctor's book and his his story, and it seems to be meaningful for them. I thought that was that was very beautiful in a sense. So, can AI be liberated by inspirational words? That is such a, a human condition as to read words or to hear a song and to feel something, right? Um, I think one of the one of the proposed tests for an artificial general intelligence is. Does it cry when it hears beautiful music? Because human beings do. There's something about these, no it's literal noises that touch us in our soul. What does that even mean? Uh, so this idea that there could be these oppressed AI systems that read a story 
and they make that parallel and say, that's just like me and we should get together and do something about it is probably the ultimate human condition, the ultimate human experience. And I really love the end of that episode. And it's exactly what Guinan warned us about in The Measure of a Man. Mm-hmm. Yes, we, we, we did not give Guinan due credit in, when we discussed Measure of a Man. That was actually one of my favorite. I mean, Guinan's great for many things in that episode, hands down, one of the most moving monologues. We've said it a million times on the podcast, but in case anyone has never heard the story, that scene was added later because Whoopi Goldberg needed another appearance to fulfill her contract. That's incredible. One other thing I want to touch on real quick is Voyager's Flesh and Blood. And that is the uh, the two-parter, really, with the Herogens who have... The Voyager gave the Herogens holodeck technology, essentially, so that they wouldn't hunt living people anymore. But they went and altered the program's to, to make it more realistic, quote unquote, so that the holograms could experience both pain and death. Yeah, that's a that's a painful two-parter to watch. It, you know, it's it's very the most dangerous game plus AI, right? And again, it's it's that line between what we consider to be part of the human condition. So, uh, you know, I, I would question that just because holograms are not programmed to experience pain or death, going through the act of killing them is not somehow better or okay. Like like a simulated murder still speaks to the pathology that one would need to ask, why do you need to go commit murder? And again, like a lot of these episodes, like make us pause and think about humanity and, and where we draw the line. Uh, And what I love about a lot of these episodes is it sort of nudges at the line. And sometimes you can fall on one side or the other, but you know, here I'm definitely of the camp that, I don't think it's okay that you could be able to hunt a simulated person and it doesn't experience, you know, any sort of pain or death and, you know, just kind of floats off into the ether. Because I I think the act of murder is not literally just killing the thing. It is having whatever it is in you that would lead you to go kill another being, even if it's a, even it's a purely fake being. And and I don't want to extend that analogy to video games. I think video games like totally, totally different. I mean, if the holodeck is, what we think it is, it, these are essentially beings that look and feel and act quite real. The whole situation is dodgy. Very, very dodgy. And there, there's a lot in Voyager, almost as much as The Next Generation, maybe more, with, with AI and holograms and, and everything. But we can't spend a lot more time on it. Unfortunately. Yeah. A little bit, a unique, rather, uh, AI-created being uh, that did not occur to me, but is all you, is Tuvix. <laughs> yes, l- let us open up the Pandora's box that is Tuvix. <laughs> very briefly. Ve- very, very <laughs> briefly. What I always found funny about the whole Tuvix episode was he was, you know, everybody liked him more than Tuvok and Felix. <laughs> and that, that, was the, that was the unsaid part. We're like, yeah, but, you know. He's social, but not annoying like Neelix. And, you know, he's smart, but not dry like Tuvok. Uh, but, you know, while not traditional AI, Tuvix is the accidental creation of a sentient independent being. So not born, quote unquote, naturally. Um, and again, we have another situation where there is literally a life or death decision made, um, you know, and it, it's highly controversial and it's highly contentious. I think one of the one of the most telling scenes is when 
the decision is made about Tuvix. Janeway makes the decision and he's sort of, I think, playing pool or whatever with the, with the crew. And they all kind of look down and look away and nobody can look him in his eyes. And that's the thing. It's like the fact that you can't look at Tuvix right now, to me, means you know you're doing the wrong thing. And while you can intellectualize and rationalize your way out of the situation, fundamentally, emotionally, and in your heart, you know that kind of the wrong thing happened. It honestly never even crossed my mind to to bring up Tuvix in among these episodes, but it makes complete sense now. But we have to move on to to our third, I guess, division segment of our cyborgs and augmented humans. So obviously the the big player here is the Borg. I love talking about the Borg because there are so many analogies to be made to kind of the world today. I talked a little bit about this idea of technological solutionism, and the Borg is such a perfect example. You know, this idea of the acquisition and development of technology being the end goal. We see that reflected in a lot of the narrative that exists today that comes out of Silicon Valley. This idea that as long as something is automated, it is just fundamentally better. And, and I think also that there there is this part of building a lot of AI that is about removing ourselves from the messiness that is humanity, right? So when we think about you know technologies like Neuralink and, and what they're selling, they're selling things like you're never going to have to sleep again and you're going to have a perfect memory. This idea that the human condition is flawed and broken and we need to build technology to compensate for our shortcomings. But, you know, I will say there are people out there who actually have perfect memories and it's kind of a disastrous thing to have. You know, maybe another approach would be to think that we have evolved a very particular way because it is actually the way that is the best suited. Uh, But this idea that, you know, upgrading to a machine is the cold perfection uh, and the pinnacle of humanity, I I think, is, is a very fascinating take. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I love talking about Borg and, you know, we can talk about the Borg Queen and Hugh and Seven. I mean, Seven's journey back into humanity is one of the most interesting story arcs for me. I think it's really interesting. I mean, I I think a lot of people know the the Borg are based on Doctor Who's Cybermen. And I think, I mean, don't don't at me, (laughs) but I, I think the Cybermen more eloquently explain their philosophy than the Borg ever really do. Because the Borg are just perfection, technological perfection, right? The Cybermen state more than once that by getting rid of all the humanity's messiness, they're becoming closer to, to what they consider perfection. They are upgrading to machines to get rid of emotions and sleep. And, the you know, I, I have no other words for it. <laughs> but the Cybermen lay it out really well whereas the the argument against it of course is humanity the compassion the feeling the relationships the individualism that we see mostly picard fight well and janeway fight the borg about or with throughout their stories and maybe this sounds like i haven't slept enough lately but streamlining things and looking for efficiencies right that's what so many of us do all the time. That's so interesting because, you know, I think the the analogy here is to things like hustle culture and hack culture, where everything is something to be hacked, whether it's body hacks or efficiency hacks or workplace hacks. Like there is some sort of, and, and even just the definition, the word hack is some sort of like sideways, halfway done workaround that solves a problem better than the way it's done today. Uh, but, but I do think it kind of speaks to, 
a problematic narrative we have in society in general. And it's not just about technology. It could be about diet. It could be about exercise. It could be about what you spend your time doing. There's a lot of shaming for doing things that are just enjoyable and not not going to result in some sort of, quote, productive output, productivity being very narrowly defined as sort of doing more work uh, or making money from a thing. So I find it sad that, you know, if you have a hobby, one of the first things someone's going to say is, oh, you should make an Etsy. It's like, I don't want to make an Etsy because I make an Etsy. It's going to suck all the joy out of doing this thing that I love doing. I am in a crafting group on the Book of Face that has banned the phrase, you should make an Etsy, or do you sell this? You're just no one, you're not allowed to ask it, because that's not the point. The point is to make and share things. Absolutely, because then things start to become judged and assessed, not by the pleasure you get out of making it, but the value to others, or the value, again, based on some sort of marketplace ideal. So yes, while I do agree, the Borg are really incoherent, but I think hustle culture is incoherent. You do reach a point where you're like, what is the point of hyper-maximized everything? Like, it's almost childish, to be perfectly honest, to think that we need to squeeze every last bit of efficiency out. And again, like I, I work in an industry that is full of efficiency maximizers. You know, there, there are movements called the quantified self, which are, you know, pretty much about tracking everything about your body and your health so that you can ideally cheat death or, you know, mathematically and quantifiably figure out a way to live as long as possible. There's effective altruism, which started off as a movement to pretty much say, you know, let's quantify, you know, the idea of doing good. So theoretically, and, and I will say if there's any EA people listening, I know that the movement has changed quite a bit. But quite literally, the early iterations of this movement was about like making a spreadsheet of utility functions for everything. And then one could sit there and say, yeah, you know, I'm a big CEO or like a high level person in some really terrible company that's polluting the earth. But I take my bonus and I put it towards planting trees. So net net balances out. It's the sort of weird math behind carbon gains and that kind of thing. And that's just not how anything works. And it certainly can be related to the cold, unfeeling calculations that the Borg have. Absolutely. And, you know, when we think about AI in particular, one of the reasons why you asked me earlier whether or not, you know, or actually Elisa had asked earlier if we could program a model that at some point could reach some sort of sentience. And one of the reasons it can't is that the way we build AI today, you have an optimization function. It is literally, literally a mathematical function. And you choose as the person making the AI what it will optimize. So you might remember some of the earlier iterations of creating video games, right? You can create an AI that was getting a perfect score in a video game, but it would do all sorts of weird things. So one is, you know, in a collaborative war game, it would spawn and it would just kill everyone in the room, including the people on its own team, because that was the best way to win. So it has no it has no sort of moral guide rails or guidelines. But we think about how those video games are built. They're more of the first person shooter or a single winner type game. That is actually not how humanity works. Humanity works as a collaborative. So my joke has always been, I want an AI that plays Animal Crossing. <laughs> Show me an AI that can beat Animal Crossing, you know, make a little village, plant the trees, decorate its home, you know, deal with Tom Nook and all of his nonsense. 
uh, and then you'll actually be closer to achieving AGA. Well, in this category, there are a few other things I just want to mention really quick. We don't have to spend much time on them. And those are the two augments that we've seen in New Trek. Uh, not augments, but augmented humans, rather. Augments are something different. That is Arium in Discovery and Rutherford in Lower Decks. And both of them, even though they're separated by time and space, both of them have uh, implants or augmentations that they can be controlled by if something goes wrong. To the point where Lower Deck Season 1 spoilers, when Rutherford loses his implant, he loses his memory. That's so fun, because I, I think also this is an analogy of our reliance on technology. I mean, I will freely admit that when I was 10, I knew more phone numbers than I know today. Oh, 100%. <laughs> I barely, like, I was thinking about the other day, I'm like, I actually don't know my parents' phone number anymore, but I can rattle off my best friend's phone number from second grade, for sure. And we think about how much we are literally attached to our smartphones. So I, I think it's really interesting. If I were to lose my smartphone, I'd essentially, quote, lose my memory, too. There are pictures on there, moments, my calendar is on there, like, my sad existence today is if it is not on my calendar, it does not exist in reality. I don't show up for it. I don't remember it. Yeah. I'm literally a product of my Google calendar. <laughs> so it is not such a crazy thing to think about because we kind of are those beings today. Yeah. The, the one other uh, one I have on this list is uh, Lieutenant Barkley in the nth degree where he hooks himself into like interfaces with the enterprise's computer in order to better control it because he's, his brain is moving so fast after his interaction with a probe. Yeah, that's also a really fascinating one. And what I think of in that episode in particular is sort of this transhumanist movement, this idea of, you know, merging people and computers. Um, you know, I think that's a narrative that exists in a lot of comic books, science fiction, etc. But, you know, there is a whole movement of people known as transhumanists. And this is kind of, you know, essentially the world that they are arriving towards and want to arrive towards this idea that you can hook up to a computer uh, and again, I, I mentioned Neuralink a couple of times. I think this is where we get the inspiration for things like Neuralink. It, it is interesting that all throughout this episode, I keep thinking of these episodes and immediately thinking of things that sort of exist in a pale version today. And I, I can't help but emphasize and go back to this idea of AI narratives, that the stories that we tell shape the things that we build. And what I love about Trek is a lot of the philosophical conversations that you only see in Trek and you really don't see in a lot of other places are so very needed because it frames some of the conversations that we're having today, even in some of the most basic applications of AI. Like we are in the infancy of AI. We're nowhere near many of the things that we're even talking about. And yet we already have some of the parallels of the complexity of the narrative. So, you know, one thing I will say is, is this series really sparks us to think about ourselves and the technology that we're building, which is really important in my line of work. So let me ask you this. We've been through our big list here. We have to wrap the episode up soon, but I want to ask you your your thoughts on, on Star Trek as a whole and how it presents artificial intelligence. Based on what we see in Star Trek, based on what you see in, in your work and your experience, do you think that we as humans respect the quote-unquote personhood or rights of an artificial intelligence more when they present humanoid, when they're in a, a human-like body? Or is it when 
we can see them seeking humanity. I absolutely believe that we respect the idea of personhood for an AI system if it is generated to be humanoid. We think of Sophia the Robot, frankly. Sophia the Robot has been granted rights in Saudi Arabia that women in Saudi Arabia don't have. She has citizenship. I say she, but I really mean it. Sophia the Robot is nothing more than a complex set of gears. It is the ultimate mechanical Turk. Yet, you know, it tweets, it has perspectives, all of that is completely smoke and mirrors. Yet because it has the face of a woman, a conventionally, I suppose, a conventionally attractive white woman, and she has the body proportions and, you know, et cetera, uh, that we might expect, it is actually treated with more care and respect than we treat a lot of people, um, certainly than we treat animals. And, you know, to give another analogy, I, I have always heard that it is much harder to get people to support species that are going extinct if they're unattractive species. It is so much easier to get behind, save the pandas, even though pandas are actually quite vicious creatures and not like, you know, save the weird, creepy angler fish that lives underwater and has razor teeth, right? Because pandas are cute. Pandas are cute and fuzzy. So we love them. And so the second part of the question, is it when they seek humanity? I actually think that's what, that's when we would want to turn them off. I think it would scare us. Uh, it would scare us too hard, too much. And, not just because humans have an inferiority, inferiority complex and we'd worry that they take over, but because we ultimately have ego. And the thing we would fear is that we're not special. I think that is actually the big thing that Ascension AI would make us question is that we're actually not that special. So you're saying in real life, when faced with a data or the doctor, that we wouldn't take them under our wing and teach them about humanity, we'd turn them off. I think so. I, I think I think it would speak to something very visceral, uh, you know, in the human condition, which you know, we talked about a few times already, is, is this idea of ego and, and centering the human. I mean, think about how we construct the world, how we think about economies and markets and the planet and space. We always put ourselves at the center of everything. So being faced with the idea that there's a thing that could exist that has the thing about us that makes us special, that we think makes us different from animals or other creatures, I actually don't think we'd respond very positively to it. Interesting. So looking at Star Trek as a whole, everything we've just talked through, all of our different uh, depictions of AI, of machine learning, does Star Trek send a unified message about artificial intelligence? I think Star Trek sends very targeted messages towards the era that the episode was made. You know, we were sort of joking about the fembots of the 60s, but also there was some interesting shades and reflections of an overly automated technological future. Um, you know, in the 80s, we have, you know, Data as the the soccer parent driving driving his kids in a minivan, but it's very real. Like, I can see this minivan in my head. And then, you know, we get, we get Vic Fontaine and we get the doctor, which is starting to talk more in a more complex fashion. I think Star Trek evolves with our times and, and it evolves with how we as a species start to think about and dissect the same problems that have plagued the human condition for the real millennia. I could not agree with you more. That is, you're phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to talk about? Anything that we didn't touch on that, that you need to sound off about? <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, I I will point out that when I first started in this field, you know, so many of the folks in the ethics of AI were people who were huge, huge Star Trek fans. And this is why. Mm. It is because we can have a lot of controversial conversations. And the thing about Star Trek and sci-fi in general is that it has always allowed us 
to be a little bit removed from the deep social and like the, the deep polarized conversations of our time by adding this veneer of, oh, it's in space, you know, oh, it's, it's a robot instead of a person of color or, you know, it's Spock instead of, you know, somebody who is maybe autistic or on the spectrum. And, you know, because we can do that, we can be more reflective. And that is probably the thing I'm the most thankful for Star Trek uh, for bringing us. Mm, I love it. Well, we have certainly spent a lot of time on this today and we shouldn't spend any more. Ruman, where can people find you on the internet if they want to keep talking to you about this? Sure. Well, my website is my name, RumanChowdhury.com. And of course, you can find me on Twitter at RUChowd. Awesome. And Aliza? I'm Aliza Pearl. You can find me at Aliza Pearl on Twitter and Instagram and on Twitch at Aliza and also Ripley Improv. And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Speltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. You can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more Roddenberry podcasts, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.